Thank you, Daryl and Tina. First Corinthians chapter eight is where we'll be this morning. Just catching us up with with the context. Paul wrote First Corinthians to a church they loved, they cared for deeply. He spent a year and a half in Corinth uh, planting this church. He left, uh, and then the church was just filled with lots of problems, lots of struggles. Um, false ideologies, false thoughts, all sorts of things kind of crept into this uh, little church in Corinth. And so they wrote Paul a letter, and Paul heard all these reports of these things taking place. And so largely what a lot of 1 Corinthians is, is Paul writing to this group, one, answering questions that they asked him, but secondarily addressing some of the issues that he knows are taking place in this little congregation. And so we've seen this play out in all sorts of areas and in all sorts of ways. (laughs) Bless you. (laughs) Unity is the theme. Unity is the key in, in 1 Corinthians. What Paul is talking about and Paul is working with this church through is this idea of church unity, how we're unified to one another and how we're unified with Christ. And this is an important theme, and it's an important theme for us just as much as it was for the original audience because unity, for the sake of unity, does not work. We can't be unified just because we say we want to be unified. We have to draw lines. We have to have standards. We have to have things that we hold to. And so what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians is he's walking through all of these instances, these things that are taking place, and he's showing these people Here's how you're unified in these areas and in these situations. In this particular text that we come upon this morning, this is important. Paul's going to deal with food offered to false gods, false idols. And how Christians are meant to think about these things, how we're meant to process through these things. Now, for you and I, in our context, we're very rarely, if if at all, ever going to come across food that's been offered to a false idol as in a false religion. But some of the underlying things that Paul is doing here are extremely important for us. So let's read. We're going to read all of chapter 8, and then we'll pray and we'll dive in like we always do. Now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols then. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father. All things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. And all things are through him and we exist through him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat it. We're not better off if we do eat. But be careful that uh, that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, The one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died, is ruined by your knowledge. 
when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causeth my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. God, I'm grateful that we come to this passage, which can just feel distant and far away from us because of the food offered to idolsness that's taking place in there. But God, what you're doing here is you're showing us how to live with one another, how to know one another. God, how to show Christian, godly, Jesus-centered love to one another. God, how we can have knowledge of you and not be puffed up, how we can have knowledge of you and not be conceited, but rather, God, what true knowledge of you does is it humbles us. What true knowledge of you does, God, is it shows your gospel to us, the good news of you, Jesus Christ, that you set aside your desires, you set aside your own self to die in the place of those who don't deserve it. And that if we're believers, if we're Christians, God, we can emulate this. We can sacrifice our own selfish desires for the sake of brothers and sisters in you. Pray that this word would encourage our hearts where we need encouragement, that it would convict our hearts where we need conviction. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's reread uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So Paul's doing several things here when he's talking about these idols and this food that's being sacrificed. This is a very common thing in Corinth. You have these temples, you have these feasts, and you would go to the feast, you would cook your meal, and you'd be invited to these parties to go eat. And so this was a, a huge issue for the, the, the Christians in Corinth, trying to decide, should we eat with the, the meat that's been sacrificed to these false gods, these false idols, or, or do we reject those things? How do we live in the world but not of the world is the question that they're really asking. And so Paul is either quoting something that they say, like another phrase that's common in, in uh, Corinth when he says we all have knowledge, but, but Paul presses this a little bit when he says knowledge puffs up. This idea of being puffed up has played itself out several times in Corinth. It's pride. It's arrogance. It's this idea of just being filled with, with air, that you're getting bigger and you're being puffed up, but when you get deep inside, there's really nothing there. There's no substance. So this knowledge that they're talking about puffs up, but love builds up. So let's talk about love for a minute. Hadaway, the great philosopher, once asked, what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. And he never answered the question. If you listen to that song, he does not tell you what is love. He just repeats that phrase. And so what we have done in our hearts is we have defined love in a variety of different ways. And that plays into how we read scripture and how we understand what God is saying. Because when we read love here, how you view love, how I view love is going to play into how we're supposed to love, how we're supposed to build others up. So what we have to do is make sure that our understanding of love is biblical. So what is love? Is is love avoiding pain, as Hathaway would suggest? Baby, don't hurt me. I think that's avoiding pain. Or is love, as the dictionary says, an intense feeling of deep affection? 
Or is love an interest or a pleasure in something? Or is love just accepting who somebody is? All of those things to a degree are true, but that's not biblical love. In fact, the Bible tells us what love is. In Matthew chapter 22. Sorry, I went the wrong way. Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40. This is Jesus. When he's trying to summarize the law for the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, uh, He has said to them, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important command, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets depend on these two commands. And so immediately what Jesus is teaching us about love is biblical love first and foremost is from the Lord. It's not first and foremost our affections. It's not first and foremost our feelings. It's not first and foremost our desires. It's not first and foremost an emotion. Throughout the scripture, we are commanded to love, and you can't command an emotion. So there's something more to this biblical idea of love than it's just this fluttering of the wind and how I feel at any perceived moment. That's not love. It may be a, a form or a pattern or some kind of love, but it's not the biblical love that God is talking about. So what we see Jesus doing is he's summarizing all of the law in two phrases. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So love God with everything, and then love your neighbor as yourself. If you look at the Ten Commandments, this is what happens with the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are about our relationship with God, and the last six are about our relationship with one another. So Jesus takes all of those and summarizes them in this way, that our love starts with God, and that it flows from God. In fact, if we look at 1 John 4, 16 through 21, John says this, God is love, and the one who remains in love remains in God, and God remains in him, and if this, uh, in this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of, day of judgment because he is so uh, also are we in the world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet he hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him, the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. We see it again that God first loved us, that while you and I are unlovable is what the Bible tells us, while you and I are straying from God, fleeing from God, have no desire to be with God, God first loves us and brings that love into our hearts. And so it's from there that we can then love Love God first, which is what we see happening here again. If you say you love God, but you don't love your brother, there's an issue with your love. It's not biblical love. That it starts with the love of God, and it flows to love of one another. That we love because God first loved us. So at our house, when we talk about love, when I'm trying to teach my kids to love one another, which is harder some days than others, we say it like this. Love means you want the best for somebody else. You desire the best for them. Now sometimes the best for somebody else is they need encouragement. 
They need to be picked up. They're having a hard day. They're struggling. You need to come alongside them and encourage them in those ways. And sometimes what's best for somebody else is, is a rebuking kind of love. It's to not let them to continue run and sin, to not let them to continue to chase and flee after things of the world and not of the Lord, that the love there would not be acceptance, that it would not be uh, that kind of love, but rather the love would be we love you too much to let you keep doing these things that's destroying your life. It's to love God first and then love others from the love of God. See, Paul goes on and he talks about if anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as though he ought to know it. <laughs> it's a weird way of saying is if you think you have all the knowledge that you need, you don't actually have all the knowledge that you need. It's like saying I'm the most humble person I've ever met. That's not how humility works. That knowledge, if it's knowledge of the Lord, builds up in humility. It grows you in humility. It teaches you to love, to care for, to desire what's best for someone else. But if anyone loves God, is what Paul says. And, and, and this is an interesting point. Did you catch what Paul says here? He doesn't say if anyone loves what God gives them. He says, if anyone loves God, far too often you and I, and, and, and maybe this is just a, a cultural moment for us where we need to step back and look, is we'll thank God for all the things that he gives us, but we just forget to thank God for being God and to adore God and to worship God and to glorify God just in and of himself. That so often our affections, our thoughts towards the Lord are about what he does for us as opposed to just who God is. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. Galatians 4, 9 says something uh, similar to this. It says, but now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? Second Timothy uh, 2, 19 Paul says this, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, bearing this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who calls on his name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. What Paul is getting at here was he's saying this knowledge that can puff us up, if we think we know everything, if we think we have it all together, if we think we figured life out, this knowledge puffs us up, but in reality, it's just a whole mess of emptiness that's taking place, that in reality, love for one another is more important than this knowledge just is building up if the knowledge is not implemented the right way. And so what he's saying, and, and, and when Paul wants to humble somebody, when the Bible wants to hum humble somebody, what the Bible typically does is it talks about God. And we get to one of those sections that's talking about election, that's talking about being chosen by God because it's meant to humble us. We've talked about this before. God absolutely elects people to be saved. That is extremely biblically clear that God saves people. We're not saved by our own works. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved because God. He chose us. He loves us first. At the same time, the scripture says we have to put our faith in Jesus to be saved. Those two things we hold in tension. And so what Paul is doing here is he's trying to humble us. He's trying to grow us in humility. He is saying is if you love God, he is known by him. You're known by God. You've been chosen by God. You're saved, not because of what you've done. You're not saved because you're awesome. You're not saved because you're great. You're saved because God is the Savior who saved you. 
There's no knowledge that saved you. It doesn't puff you up because you're so smart. God's like, I have to have them. No, instead, what Paul is saying is God loved you first when you were unlovable. And because God loved you when you were unlovable, you now in turn go and love others even when they're not lovely back to you. I told Ruby I wouldn't make a Hermley joke, so I'll just leave it there. Verse 4. Now about eating food sacrificed to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, and all things are from him, and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, and all things are through him, and we exist through him. So what we see is the knowledge of God leads us to love like God. And then secondarily, the knowledge of God leads us to see idols and gods as they truly are fake. I've had experiences just being a pastor and being in school where I've got to go to different religious places and see kind of how they worship. I went to a Hindu temple uh, one time for a class and we walked into the Hindu temple and there was just these statues everywhere. Um, and, and then there was people that would come in and worship and there was like a little uh, uh, auditorium, little sanctuary like ours. And they would climb up the stairs and just top, touch the top of the stairs because that's the holy place because these statues for them, they believed, were genuinely God. They offered food to these gods. I watched bananas go bad. But I also watched men longing for something, yearning for something to make them pure and unable to find it in a Hindu temple. I've been to mosques, I've gone to two, and listened to them talk about a God who is not a God of love, but a God of wrath, a God who just wants to whoop you until you get your act together, and you can't ever really know if you're saved or not, you just do your best and you hope that you do enough to be good enough that God would save you, but that's not the God of the Bible. Those are false gods. I used to work for a guy who would pray to the parking ferry every time we pulled into a Sam's parking lot. And every time a parking spot opened up at the front, he would give praise to the parking ferry. It was a joke. It still is a joke. He doesn't really praying to a parking ferry. But we see those things take place. And, and sometimes when we think about idols, we think about these wooden carvings or these metal images or these statues or all of these things that are kind of far away from us. But when the Bible talks about idolatry, when the Bible talks about idols, when it talks about false gods, it's anything that is not God that's influencing our decisions. It's influencing our emotions. It's influencing the way we think about things. And so we have idols, whether you want to see them or not. How did tech do yesterday? Caitlin throwing her idol sign. Our kids can be idols. They're good things that God has given us, but they're not God things meant to control us. Our spouses can be idols, good things that God has given us that we should love and that we should care for and that we should work to cherish and to grow. But if we end up worshiping them, that's a false God and it's a false idol. What Paul does here is so interesting. What stands out in this section of Scripture is how Paul talks about Jesus. Look what he says. He says, yet for us there is one God, the Father. Right? That's the Shema. The Lord, the Lord God, the Lord is one. That's, the, that's Deuteronomy 6. 
But then look what he does. He says, from him, all, uh, all things are from him, and we exist for him. There is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. Do you see what Paul is doing? Paul takes the Shema, he takes this God of the Old Testament that everybody recognizes, and he grabs Jesus, and he says, Jesus is this same God of the Old Testament. That we are saved through Jesus. That we exist through Jesus. And we see this in other places in Scripture. We can look at, at uh, uh, Colossians. Uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, if I can find it. There you go. Ch- uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him, by Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, all the fullness of God dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Do you see what Paul is saying in Colossians? It's the hymn of Christ. It's not that Jesus is this subordinate thing that God has created and he's a really good person. It's that Jesus is God in the flesh. The fullness of God dwells in Jesus while he's 100% man, 100% God, and it's the sacrifice of Jesus that saves us. What Paul is doing is he's elevating Jesus. He's God. Not just a prophet. A complete and total, fully God. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. If you're in Bible, the Word is capitalized because it's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him. And apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and the light uh, was the in the life. And that life was the light of men, and the light shined in darkness, and yet darkness did not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God, whose name was John, and he came to witness and testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, the true light, and to give light to everyone who was coming to the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observe his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed that this was the one whom I said, the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. And indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, has revealed him. Do you see what Paul is saying? Do you see what the Bible talks about Jesus as? The creator God. All things were created through him. That God dwelt in the flesh. Put on flesh. The, the knowledge of God leads us to see that idols and gods that we create are fake. But the God of the Bible is true. That Jesus is truly God. This is where false religions tend to part with Christianity. 
it tends to be over the role of Jesus, who Jesus really is. Is he God or is he something created? He's not created. He's the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, complete and full. All things are through him, and we exist through him. This is why we make a big deal of Jesus. This is why I have a cross that I try to preach behind. It's because the sacrifice of Christ is God dying in our place to take our debt and to cover us in his righteousness. It's God saving us. That's why we don't move away from the cross of Jesus Christ. So the knowledge of God leads us to love like God. The knowledge of God leads us to see idols and gods as they truly are, dead, not real. And the knowledge of God leads us to not sin against brothers and sisters. Look at verse 7. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up to now that, that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food is not to bring us close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat it. We're not better off if we do eat it. But be careful that this right of yours is no way becoming a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat foods offered to idols? So the weak person, the brother or the sister for whom Christ died is ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. So Paul dives into this idleness, this, these foods, these sacrifices being made to idols and being cooked. He says, not everybody has this knowledge, talking about Jesus being God, having saving human beings. Not everybody has that knowledge. Not everybody's a believer in Jesus Christ, even in Corinth. Dare we say, not everybody's a believer even in Ira. But then Paul goes on and he presses this point in an interesting way. He says, but some people are so tied to the culture. Some people are new believers. Some people have not grown in their faith. They haven't matured in their faith. They're so used to idolatry that up to that point, they would eat food sacrificed to an idol. And now that they're Christians, they want to reject that life. They're trying to run away from those things. But Paul says, what is the Baptist's least favorite verse? Food will not bring us to God. Our potlucks are merely fellowship. If it did bring us to God, we would be closer than the Methodists for sure. So what Paul is saying is he's saying you have to recognize that within your church, within this church at Corinth, within our church, there are people who are new believers. There are people with weaker consciences. This isn't a sin the things that we deal with. The conscience what Paul is talking about is, is, is our, our morals, our ethics, how we determine what is right and what is wrong within our own life. And typically when we deal with consciences, when we're trying to do these things, we're far more likely to add to the word of God when we're trying to wrestle with our conscious issues than we are to take away from God. This was the problem with the Pharisees. That they had moral issues, that they had ethics, that they were trying to follow God's law. And so what they did was they went outside of Scripture and added all of these things to the Bible. 
And what Paul is telling us is this food that's sacrificed to idols, the idols are dead, they're not real idols, they're just these wooden carvings, these metal things that they're offering to the food, it's just food. There's nothing special or, or good about it, it's just food. You're not worse off if you don't eat it, you're not better off if you do eat it, it's just straight up food. But then Paul talks about this idea of Christian liberty. And he says in, in verse 9, be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. This is an important verse for us to pause and think about. One of the things Paul has done in 1 Corinthians as we have walked verse by verse through this thing is he has said one of the things you give up when you're a believer is your rights. That you gladly sacrifice things for the good of others. That if you have a right and it's causing somebody else to sin, you gladly push away that right to help the weaker brother or the sister to grow in Christ. And then Paul says you don't want to become a stumbling block to the weak. But that phrase stumbling block is interesting because it's not the first time Paul's used that in this book. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 21 through 25, Paul says this, For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believed through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Do you see what Paul is kind of doing, toying with this idea of a stumbling block? As there are times, Paul tells us in in, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 24, 23, sorry, that we preach Christ crucified. That's something we constantly do. And that proclamation of Jesus Christ crucified is going to be a stumbling block for some people. And we don't walk away from it. We let them trip. We stumble. We don't pull away from Christ crucified just because it makes the path a little bit smoother for people. We put Christ crucified right there. That's what we proclaim. That's what we preach. That's what we teach. We be gospel-centered. Yet, in, in chapter 8, Paul says... Be careful with this right of yours that it in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. What is Paul talking about? Is he speaking out of both sides of his mouth? No. In 1 Corinthians 1, he's talking about salvation. There is no other way to be saved. You can make the path as smooth as you want to, but if you take Christ crucified out of it, it is not salvation. It's a smooth path straight to hell. Without the crucified Savior, we cannot save ourselves. We must wrestle with the cross. We must look at our sin. We must look at the sacrifice of Jesus, the atoning death that he died for you and I as sinners. That he credits us with his righteousness, not our righteousness, not a righteousness we earn, but a righteousness given to us that we receive. And in 1 Corinthians 8, he's not talking about issues of salvation. He's talking about knowing brothers and sisters in Christ to know, knowing them well enough to know where they're weak and where they struggle and know where they're strong and where they can stand. He 
says. If someone sees you, the one who has knowledge, right, the, the one who knows Jesus, who knows the gospel, who knows that Jesus is God, dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? It's trying to sort out this ethics and this morality. That Christianity is a lot to take in. The message of the gospel is simple, but it's deep. There's a lot there for us that we're trying to grow in our understanding of Jesus. I, I, I believe with what the early church says and what scripture says is if you ever come across a time where you are offered food that you know is offered to idols, you should not eat of it. You should not partake in that food. Paul says that in other places. John says that in Revelation. It's pretty clear in the New Testament. Church history is the same way. Early in the church, these were questions they had to deal with, and they unanimously came up with, if you know it's sacrificed to an idol, abstain from it, do not eat that food. However, we're not saved by food. We don't lose our salvation from food. So we don't have to run around the store trying to find out if our spam has been offered to idols or not. You can just eat it with a clear conscience. You don't have to have kosher pickles. You're good. Right? The food isn't the issue here. It's the heart, it's the conscience, it's understanding that if you're saved by God, you love like God. And if you have the knowledge of God, then you see idols as they are, that they're not real, that they're not true. And if you have the knowledge of God, this leads you to not sin against your brother and sister, or instead encourage them in their conscience, disciple them, grow them, help them. So that when the weak person, the brother or sister whom Christ died, if they're ruined by your knowledge. This is a hard one. That if what you do causes a brother and sister in Christ to sin, right? Now listen, they're ultimately responsible for their sin. You can't make somebody sin just like somebody can't make you sin. That's on you. However, if you're a brother and sister in Christ and we're growing with one another, we can influence one another. So we can think of this with alcohol pretty easily, right? The Bible does not say you cannot drink alcohol. It says, do not get drunk and do not cause others to stumble in sin. And so if you go somewhere and there's an alcoholic and you know they're an alcoholic and you offer them a beer, that's on you too. That's a sin for you. In verse 12, Paul says, now when you sin like this against brothers and sisters, you wound their weak conscience. But listen what it says at the end. You're sinning against Christ. Who did Paul just say Christ is? God. That ultimately, you and I, when we sin, our sin, although it affects other people and it can be directed at other people, when we sin, first and foremost, we sin against God. It is His law that we break. It is Him that we run from. So when we repent of our sin, which we should be doing, we repent first and foremost to God. And then we repent to brothers and sisters that that, that that affects, that that hurts. And then I like what Paul says at the end. If food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. Listen, we're in Texas. What Paul just says there is radical. He's saying, if I have a steak and it causes my brother and sister to fall, I will never eat steak again. It's one thing to be willing to give up your life for Jesus, but it's another thing to be willing to give up steak. What Paul's getting at is he's, saying, he's not saying don't eat meat. 
Paul is getting at is he's saying you know one another enough to help them grow in Jesus, not cause them to stumble and fall and be hurt. This is so much more than we just come together, we say hi, we shake hands, we sit down, we sing songs, and we get up and we leave and we don't see each other again until next Sunday. That this is life that's being done together. One of my favorite stories of this at our church, I told Ruby I was going to do this, that's why I promised I wouldn't make a Hermley joke. When I first got here, I would call Ruby and try to check on her, but if you know Ruby, she'll screen your calls. And so she would not answer my phone call because up on the phone it said Benjamin Moore and she thought I was a paint salesman from Amarillo trying to call her and sell her paint. And finally her grandson said, isn't your pastor's name Ben Moore? And so she answered and we have this great joke and then I went and visited Ruby in the hospital. I was telling your daughter this. I tell everybody this story about Ruby. Uh, I'm telling you all the story about Ruby. Uh, And I'm telling Susan this and Susan laughs and then the next time I go visit Ruby, Susan tosses me a hat and it's a Benjamin Moore paint hat that's in orange that I wear all the time. Those moments, that love that's built, that joy that's built, that caring that's built with one another. It's not things that we can fake. Those are not things that we can just show up and hope happen. And what the scripture is telling us is we have to be involved in one another's lives. We have to be willing to help one another grow, and we have to be willing to be helped to grow in Christ. And, and Sunday morning is important, and we should make it a priority, but it's not the only time we do this. That this takes place throughout the week as we're scattered and doing our various things. There's enough of us around, and we're at various places, and our school and community is pretty small that we bump into one another around and about. That we help grow in those areas. That we know one another enough to know when we're hurting. That we reach out and we help each other when we're hurting. That we know one another enough that when we're rejoicing and we're happy, we reach out and we rejoice and we're happy with one another. Because this is what the knowledge of God does. When we're saved by God, we know God and we're known by God and we grow in that knowledge of God. And as we grow in that knowledge of God, we care about ourselves less. We become more humble and we love one another more. We can set aside our own desires. We can set aside our own rights. We can do all sorts of things to help one another grow in Jesus Christ. We see all the false idols that take place around us, that come around us, and we can see them with a biblical worldview. We can call them out. We can lovingly help one another avoid those idols and see past them into the gospel, into the the truth of Jesus Christ, and they can help us do the same because idols are tricky and Satan is deceptive. When we grow in the knowledge of God, it helps us not to want to sin against brothers and sisters, but instead love brothers and sisters and grow with brothers and sisters in Christ. It creates in us a sacrificial love for one another, and we sacrificially love one another. We look and we image Jesus Christ better. It's the sacrificial love, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ that saves us ultimately. So that love of God that flows from us starts with God. One. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, this is going to be foreign and it's not going to make sense. 
You can, we can white-knuckle this behavior a little bit. We can hold tight to things in public, and we can pretend like these things are what we really care for and what we really true. But when we go home and when we relax and when we're alone, we know the truth if we're trying to force these things upon other people or not. If we're trying to force ourselves to do these things or not. What the love of God does is it rids us of our sins slowly but surely. That's sanctification that's taking place. But then ultimately we end up loving each other more and more, and it's easier to do because we genuinely enjoy one another more and more. That starts with the love of God. With the knowledge of who Jesus is. With the knowledge of the gospel that Jesus died in my place. That it's not really about what I know. It's about who knows me. God. As we grow in the knowledge of God, we see God for who he is. We contemplate the divinity of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that as Jesus is an infant baby, he's 100% God, 100% man, which means as Jesus is a baby, unable to change his own diaper, he's holding the universe in place. That as Jesus is learning to walk as a human, he's creating other human beings. That we worship Jesus. We glorify Jesus. We make much of Jesus. And as we grow in a knowledge of God, we forsake ourselves for the sake of others. We image Christ. Because ultimately, love means knowing others and being known by others. We talked about this in our, our Sunday school class with the kids this morning. They were talking about clothing, why we have to wear clothing. We talked about clothing because in the garden, when we sinned, what always comes after sin is shame. And immediately what comes after sin is they recognize they were naked and they were ashamed. And so they make clothes for themselves, but their clothes were not adequate. Their own clothes, their own works weren't enough to fully clothe themselves. And so what God does is he sacrifices an animal to cover the shame of his people. That before he cast them out of the garden, he clothes them, not in leaves, but in an animal. I believe a lamb, but there's no scripture doesn't tell us exactly what animal it is. What we see throughout the Bible is that's how God always deals with his people. The lambs die so that the people can be covered for their sin. And ultimately we see the lamb of God, Jesus himself, die to cover us from our sin, from our shame. So much of the gospel is you and I are completely and fully known by God. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And that God looks upon our shame. He looks upon the good. He looks upon the bad. And he looks upon the ugly. And he says, mine. And he saves us. He takes your place on the cross. And so when God sees us now for believers, he doesn't see our good, bad, and ugly. What he sees is the righteousness of his son, Jesus. We're known by God. And we're forgiven. There's not some area of our heart where God's like, oh, I didn't see that when I saved you. If I had seen that, I would have rejected you. No, God knows us completely and fully and we're forgiven. And our sin, our, sin, our shame is covered. And so as we grow in the knowledge of God and we grow in this love that God has for us, it naturally overflows to one another. 
this sounds idealistic, right? It sounds like this is just all peachy keen, that everything is going to be great, that if we'll just take this, we can lock arms, we can skip around, we can do everything that we want to, and we're never going to fight with one another ever again. Amen. If only we can get our children to see this. This is one of the most important and most neglected parts of the local church. It's the same thing with marriage. It's the same thing with kids. When we get married, one of the first things the Lord teaches you is you are a far bigger sinner than you realize. That's what he taught me. And I'm far more selfish than I realized. When you have kids, what you quickly realize is you're far more selfish than you realize, that you're a far bigger sinner than you realize. And when you lock arms with brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who all love Jesus, who are all saved by Christ, and we stand next to one another, what God is going to show us is we're going to butt heads sometimes, and God's going to reveal to you that you and I are far bigger sinners than we realize sometimes. This is a good thing because it gives us an opportunity to repent of our sin, to turn to Jesus Christ, and to grow in sanctification. If we run from this, we're not sanctified in God as much as we should be. If we lean into the gospel, if we lean into Jesus Christ, if we recognize that he died for me, that he died for you, if you're a believer in Jesus, that we can grow in this gospel, then you and I together can be sanctified. We can be justified in God more and more. And then what the world sees are a bunch of misfit people who gather together and it doesn't make sense that they enjoy each other as much as they do, that they cook these potlucks and everybody brings their own random weird things, but the food doesn't save them, but this is just a big deal for them. thought that might hit a little different. We're doing a chili cook-off for a member meeting and I have mine right here. there's something about the love that we can show one another that displays to a world that's lost and dying just an inkling of what the love of Christ is. A love that sees you for who you are and that covers sin and shame. May we glorify God by loving one another like that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you that we do get to gather together, God, that you have brought us together in your sovereignty, that it's not an accident that we're here, that nobody is not here by a mistake or is here by mistake, but God, that you have brought us all here for your purpose and for your glory. I pray, God, as we try to do church, try to